you know you just pull in from the ether you're just making shit constantly my photoshop skills went through the fucking roof let me tell you i would sit in bashan's office and i would try to trick him into showing me how to make shit because i just wanted <laughs> to see him make stuff listening to Wellfed. I'm your host, John Sarantino, a designer based out of New York, and on each episode, I sit down to talk with one of my creative heroes. Individuals whose work, style, and ideas I admire and continue to be inspired by every day. We discuss their past, present, and everything in between. Hey, before we start, I'm trying out something new this season, and I need your help. I'll be releasing episodes every Tuesday until the final episode, and I'll be keeping my fingers crossed that I can keep up. I would love to get your feedback after every release, and I'll be giving away stickers and pins to everyone that helps out as a thank you. All you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast on social media. Take a screenshot and DM it to me on Instagram or Twitter at WellFedPodcast, and I'll send you some good old-fashioned snail mail. With that, enjoy the episode. On this episode, I'm really excited to welcome my guest, Rich Tu, the VP of Digital Design at MTV. He's on the board of directors at AIGA. He's worked with Nike, Coca-Cola, is represented by the creative studio here in New York uh, Sunday afternoon, and he's also the creator and host of First Generation Bird in the podcast. Rich, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Thanks, John. I appreciate you coming through to the humble Viacom abode. There's a lot of energy here. <laughs> there's it's, a, lot, there's of a lot of energy in this office. It's really cool to see um, people kind of, you know, everyone's starting to leave, but there's a lot of cool people here. Yes, yes. All the cool people are sticking around doing <laughs> podcasting, i.e. you and me. <laughs> so I want to get right into it, Rich, because we have something in common that I don't really find a lot working in the city is that you grew up in New Jersey. I did. You know, Jersey boys. I mean, for the most part, people would say that I am a Jersey boy. Like I grew. <laughs> Where'd I was, you grow up? I was born in Brooklyn. Got it. But you know, moved at a young age to Jersey. What's young age? Ocean County, five, age of five. Oh yeah. So okay. you know, grew up in Jersey, went to school there for the most part. But what was Jersey like for you? How did it treat you? Well, first of all, shout out to Jersey. I love Jersey. Grew up in South Orange. I was born in St. Barnabas, and I've. All I've really known until, yeah, until after graduate school or like right before graduate school was New Jersey. And I loved it. I, I grew up in a, in a quaint little suburb. I, I, you know, had a very diverse and and uh, enriching uh, experience as a kid or like grew up. It's weird. I, got like, I feel like I've been talking all day, but now all of a sudden I've forgotten how to talk. <laughs> I grew up like having like a lot of great times. I read a lot of comic books. I spent a lot of time at Blockbuster Video on South course, Orange Avenue. Yep. So looking at a lot of VHS key art. And uh, yeah, spending my time really doing that stuff, being kind of a nerd. Uh, and, you know, just kind of uh, dabbled in all the various uh, communities and neighborhoods. Uh, what, what Jersey is, if not anything, it's very diverse. Mm-hmm. So you, and I know you can attest to that. You get to see a lot of uh, different types of people from all walks of life. You could be from, you know, uh, place A or place B, but you'll see like, you know, places X, Y, Z or people from X, Y, Z, no matter where you yep. are. You were, you know, on top of being, as you describe a, a nerd, you were also a B-boy. I was. Oh, God. Yes. (laughs) How did you get into that? How did you just decide that you were going to dance? I was a little bit, a little bit of background on me. I was a little bit 
overweight growing up, right? And then when I was a sophomore in high school, shout out to Seton Hall Prep in West Orange, New Jersey, I decided that I wanted to change my life. And this was over the course of a summer. I started the summer at about 190, 5, 6, 5, 7, 5, 6 and 3 quarters. <laughs> on a good day, on a good day. <laughs> on a good day, yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah, it depends on what sneakers I'm wearing. And I, I lost 40 pounds over the course of a summer. Mm. So I started junior year with a, a new body, essentially, feeling very different, looking very different. And, you know, I kind of was very unhealthy at the time looking back now. But I ran three and a half miles every night and then I every night. And then I basically existed on Jello and crackers. Here, that's the unhealthy part, right? So I basically had an eating disorder. And then my friends were like, uh, "Hey, Rich, we're gonna start this break dancing thing." They had seen some videos. Uh, they had specifically seen uh, Breaking the movie, okay, um, classic mm-hmm. with Turbo and Ozone. Uh, they had also gotten their hands on a, a b-boy classic underground video called b-boy summit 97 and that was you know easy rock in asia one uh rock city crew at the time really holding it down and and also you get to see like a wide swath of different b-boy styles kind of one of those tapes just got around right mm-hmm. and and then they also had like a really amazing bottle battle with a uh, style elements versus uh ken swift and and rock city crew so game changer <laughs> right and then we just we, we identified a linoleum floor <laughs> in my friend's basement in Maplewood. Shout out to Chris and also Mike Fiesta. They we just hit it there every night, and we spent a summer just learning how to dance. And it was just one of the some of the best times in my life because obviously the bonding and friendship mm-hmm. that's formed through that, but also the the level of competitiveness that you learn at a young age where you're putting yourself on the line, a bit different from organized sports. And I think organized sports obviously have their own level of competitiveness, their own benefits. But this was like, you have to show out with style. Mm -hmm. You're with your, with your crew. So you're coming in as a group. It's kind of like that Z boys mentality. Right. And you, have a very contained moment of self-expression and also you have to find your moment so you can perform within your contained moment it just teaches you a lot of uh, those parameters and also um, i was always a fan of hip-hop music that was even you know going back to when i was a you know a kid kid so all that convergence just made a lot of sense for me i mean to your point of it being a little bit it's more competitive in the sense of like sports it's almost because that moment of self-expression as you mentioned like it's a level of vulnerability that mm-hmm. you're displaying to people that you don't know. Oh yeah, you're competing, and I think it sounds like obviously it's a it is a huge influence on you from that point on. Absolutely. Actually, going back to that, um, the the level of competitiveness early, uh, I remember specifically at Zulu anniversary. This is 1999. <laughs> all right. This is also the first battle that I had battled in that was organized. That also was in public display. Um, also was DJed by uh, Africa Bambata, which is amazing. Africa right. Bambata, yep. Yeah. So I won the first round. Uh, but right before I was puking in the bathroom, it was it really I was <laughs> nauseous. I, yeah. Just butterflies in my stomach. And I'm a kid. You know, I'm 18 or 17, 18, whatever. Yeah, it was it was wild. It was yeah, it was in the Bronx, I think. 
you've had a continued sort of relationship with a favorite noodle spot of mine, Ani Ramen. Oh, yeah. I live in Jersey City, so I, I've seen the wall. <laughs> Shout out to Newark also, Avenue. Yep. You've also worked on a, a recent one in, in the new Maplewood. Yes. Um, location. And Shout all- out to that crew, Luck, Israel, Kat, Julian, holding it down. Um, and then also you went to undergrad at Rutgers. I did. Big RU. Yeah, I went to Rutgers undergrad, like you said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to repeat everything you say. It was uh, Rutgers College, and that was an interesting experience. It was, you know, big college, obviously, mm-hmm. right? About like 30,000 kids, I think. Tons of kids running around there. Yeah, exactly. I remember riding that double A bus. Yep. And uh, also, were you Grease Trucks era or post-Grease Trucks? I was, I was Grease Trucks. Gotcha. I was there. Dude, that <laughs> Fat Moon favorite. I had a, I had a few different spots. Fat Cat. You oh, know, you had a Fat... Oh, you love the Fat Cat? Gotcha. I was, I was all up in that. Um, you, went to, you went to undergrad and did a, a program in psychology, communication psychology? Yeah, I majored in communication mm-hmm. and I minored in psychology. It was wild, actually, because 9-11 happened at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember my psychology class in junior year... Um, getting canceled because of 9-11. It was, it was wild times, but that's an aside. I wanted to actually double major in communication and psychology, but then I had a first period class that was brain anatomy. I forgot the name of it. It was like we had to show up at 8 a.m. and just, you know, really be on point at that intellectual level as well as, you know, really understanding the uh, uh, brain anatomy and a lot of memorization. I just couldn't handle it. Failed that class. I was like, fine, I'll just major, <laughs> major and minor that like everyone else. Throws you off the path immediately. That one <laughs> yep. class. Whoop, barrier done. That's a very hard time of the morning to, to function. <laughs> exactly. Um, function better now as the, at that time. So this kind of brings you in, t- in terms of time, you know, 2004. And then in between that, you ended up working for or doing a piece for Swindle Magazine. Which oh, is, yeah. You know, big Shepard Fairy piece. Or Damn, you got Shepherd all the hits, Fairy John. Holy shit. Is, that's his magazine. That was yes. his magazine he published. And yes. It was big because you had uh, a piece in a Banksy-covered magazine. Yes. How, does, how do you go from psychology and communication to getting a spread in, in a magazine doing design and illustration? All fluke. Let me <laughs> let me tell you, it was such a convergence of good luck. When I graduated from Rutgers, and obviously graduating at a non art with a non art degree, right? And I felt I cheated myself. My I have a brother in law. His name's Jason Atienza. He's in, in town now. Currently lives in Shanghai. Also a young gun with the Art Directors Club. Mm-hmm. He. Uh, was a creative director at BBDO for years. And um, I don't know if you remember this from a viral guerrilla campaign for The Sopranos. Uh, for one of the seasons, they did a guerrilla campaign where there were fake arms in in the back of taxi cabs. Okay. Uh, just to kind of say like, oh, like there, there could be a body back there. Sure. It was like a viral Sopranos thing. I didn't know that. And that was one of his, okay. Jason's. And also uh, his writing partner, Frank Anselmo. So Jason... And I've known Jason for since 1999, 2000, because oh, his brother Jeff and my sister Celeste are married. Okay. And then there's uh, a, there's a connection. <laughs> there's a connection. So there's uh you know three nieces and nephews between us, mm-hmm. uh, and also shout out to Xander, Jason's son, with his uh, beautiful wife Annie. We he at the time and you know kind of being young and impressionable, and also and also seeing in Jason that he had taken a path that I wanted for myself on an emotional level, mm-hmm. he he kind of told me, hey, you should 
go to SVA and take some continuing education classes, uh, or at least he helped put that idea in my head, right? Mm -hmm. And then I took some classes in advertising, which is more of an ideation class, mm -hmm. just pure white paper, uh, illustration, and also design. And it was over the course, so it was like three days a week. So after I graduated, to, interned over a summer, then went right back into school. So I never quite stopped going to school. Mm -hmm. And then during the day, I was either a substitute teacher or I worked at the mall, Willowbrook Mall, going back to Jersey. <laughs> so it was that, right? And I did that for three years. Okay. And I, I, was, I knew I wanted to be an illustrator because I knew I had that capacity within myself and I also had that skill set. And then I would go to Barnes & Noble or Borders Bookstore at the time when they still existed. And I would go in all the magazines and see who the art directors were in the magazines that I liked. So Swindle was one of them. Obviously, the New York Times. At the time, uh, when Stephen Heller was still at the New York Times, um, a great harbinger of new talent, right? I reached out to him. I reached out to people at The Believer because I love The Believer, right? And everyone in between. And took me a couple. And also, I was hitting up The New Yorker, hitting up business. And you were, you were calling them. I was or either emailing email them and calling. or dropping off physical portfolios. Okay. I remember very vividly going to the New Yorker office and getting the kind of semi-rejection letter, sure, yeah. right? But then uh, the, I want to stay on the swindle track, but I remember one time after my third or fourth portfolio drop off with New Yorker, there was a handwritten note in the rejection letter. It was like, come back again. And it was the first <laughs> time that there was a, a signal of human contact on the other end. Cool. It was like so enriching, right? But going back to Swindle, so Swindle was a project by Shepard Ferry, obviously, and had beautiful covers, beautiful design, and also was that early mid-aughts aesthetic, kind of West Coasty, mm -hmm. but in that beautiful Losers era. Okay. And then Roger Gassman, also, he was, I, I believe, he was more like the editor-in-chief of it. I'm unsure of what the relationship was there, but he was involved in the nitty-gritty of putting stuff together. Mm -hmm. And he, he actually was one of the creators of Beyond Streets. Okay. Right? Yep. Right. The big yep. um, street art show that actually just wrapped here in Brooklyn or yeah. uh, in Brooklyn. So uh, I reached out to them and uh, Joey Parlett was, I think, the art director or designer. He, he put all the stuff together. He currently resides in Philly, I think, because I think Roger Gaspin was in Philly. I might be misinformed. So they reached out and said, hey, Rich. We want to put you, want to give you a story about uh, ATSAC, which is about the automated traffic and control system. Basically, if you ever saw the movie Italian Job, yes. and then they have the hack about like all the lights and shit. That's There's someone in a control room that is controlling all that stuff and just making sure it runs. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> it's that. So they gave me that story and it was a double page spread. There was no money involved. And I'm like, that's fine. I just want to get my reps in. Sure, yeah. And then, yeah, bang, boom, pow. It took me two weeks. Now I'm just like, wow, it took me two weeks to do that? Holy shit. That like, was, what? what's wrong with me? I was in rare form. <laughs> what, um, one, you mentioned that you did that absolutely for free. Yeah. And I think, obviously, you recognize that. The it, power. It was, it was, was going to be something big for you to have that kind of that notoriety right. that you could say that you worked for this magazine and you had a piece in it. Right. You also mentioned in that that you were contacting Stephen Heller, you know, prolific yes. art critic at the New York Times. Absolutely. Um, and I want to get into that. Getting my first published illustration. I think now, you know, having that experience, emailing and sending physical things in and the time that we're in now has changed so much. Yes. What does someone have to do to get their work in front of someone like yourself now who's sort of in that same position? You know, like... It's, it's changed so much because we're so digital in this time. Yes. What 
do you think stands out from a younger talented creative and how do they get it in in front of you to see it you know it's weird no i don't think anyone's ever asked me that question because <laughs> now i think i would be that really intense emailer and also i would go to like you know the aip parties or the mm -hmm. adc parties and be like oh hey hi you know, doing a lot of handshaking and a lot of IRL interaction. I'm like, I want to see the white in your eyes <laughs> before you shut me down. Totally. Uh, but now you are right. It's it, there's so much content out there. And I think that anyone that's worth their salt of, you know, a curator of creativity that outputs on a professional level, you're obviously looking at things on Instagram dribble i suppose yeah, still dribble's still there yeah it's still hanging yeah exactly hanging on uh i mean i'm i my personal experience in life is that i'm on instagram mm -hmm. and i'm on instagram constantly either working on my own feed because i i believe myself to be a content creator uh but you know looking at other people's feeds and inspiration feeds and kind of getting that sense and you know that alongside looking at various other inspiration blogs if i want more like case study work mm -hmm. so the to get in front of my eyes if you're a large organization or let's say if you're an agency that's you know you're we're probably all looking at the same agencies to be quite honest sure, right yeah. because mm -hmm. the, the the world is so small it's just finding the right moment to identify the right project to bring that level of accountability to the table when it comes to an individual it's more just like oh i like that person's stuff and they're popping off on instagram maybe i can reach out maybe i can just kind of probe a little bit mm -hmm. um start to form a relationship exactly start to form a relationship and see exactly um whether it's feasible to even talk to them as a person sure yeah because that that's always like a bit of a barrier for people to reach out to me that's honestly that's a bit of a bottleneck and i'm not <laughs> i'm not gonna lie so to to really break cut through to that noise it takes like a bit of a triple point stance i think um i know that we, when we met we met IRL in yep. Governor's Island yep. for uh, Chantel's Chapel, mm -hmm. right? So shout out Chantel again. Uh, yeah, exactly. Shout out Chantel Martin. Yeah, like I, I know that we had contacted each other. Uh, we had DM'd each other. Mm -hmm. So if we're DMing, this is more insight to who I am. If we're DMing on Instagram, there's a good chance that I'm really just enjoying a conversation there and i don't always remember the names mm -hmm. i don't always remember the origin of the conversation like you and i, I look back i was like oh shit we've talked like a bunch totally yeah right so it's it, almost like instagram now becomes this like that's like your contacts that is the contacts you know? it's true it's like a really good easy reference point it's like what contacts in your phone should actually be yes no <laughs> it's absolutely true because there is value placed upon the content you put out there. Mm -hmm. So uh, me as a visual thinker, um, there is an intrinsic value. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but there is an intrinsic value that I place. So meeting you IRL and also realizing we're DMing, I was like, oh shit, John's popping off. I love John. <laughs> you know let's, what I let's mean? Let's hang out. Yeah, let's hang out. Let's talk like human beings. Uh, so that's kind of what it takes. I, I think that there are definitely some hard no's. Don't do. Mm -hmm. Don't DM me and hit me up on LinkedIn at the same time. Don't yeah. do that. That is ugh, no bueno. And then so you got to give some air in between platforms. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Some air like because then that's when the the fourth wall is broken and I completely understand what your uh, what your personal goals are. Mm -hmm. uh, but also here's another pet peeve. Oh, man, please never do this. If anyone's listening, uh, don't introduce someone to 
someone and then expect the third party to, you know, like, let's say person X and person Y, person X is introducing me to person Y, but the idea of being introduced has never been vetted to me or, mm-hmm. or asked of me. Like you just kind of get looped into an email. It get looped into an email mm-hmm. um, where you're left with the uh, responsibility to respond potentially with contributing your own time and effort sure. i'm like don't do that it's like hey what was the what's what's what are we doing here everybody I, exactly yep. like, what are we doing here because also you know when you're in a place where you are curating for a brand or curating for something greater than yourself you have to protect your time and protect your energy mm-hmm. and that's a very that's something i think that works across the board you mentioned a little bit about new york times being your first commission oh yeah and you went on to do a bunch of pieces for them, you know, tutorial pieces, yeah. illustrations. Talk a little bit about how that kind of kicked off with Stephen Heller and then sure. you know what that kind of rolled into. So back in the day, I don't know if this is still the same thing, but New York Times used to have all their art directors and design directors will be available on one sheet and you could call for that. So it would have a phone number and email. Mm-hmm. It was very transparent. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I don't know if this is like a journalism thing or if this is whatever. Uh, maybe they do it for writers too. So knowing that, because that was one of the learnings I had at SVA, they're like, you can just ask for this. I got Stephen Heller's phone number and email. Cole called him and emailed, did the thing that I'd, you know, <laughs> nowadays in 2019, so aggressive to call someone, right? Before there wasn't as many platforms to do this on. It was like two things. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, there was a, probably a 50-50 chance that they checked one, but not the other. <laughs> yes, precisely. Mm-hmm. And this was 2006 to put some time on it. Uh, Stephen Heller was like, he actually answered the phone. I was like, hey, come in. He, he actually looked at portfolios, IRL. So I came in and I showed him a student portfolio that I'd put together at my time at SVA as a continuing ed student. Mm-hmm. And this is still, I had only done two years. I did, I did another full year in continuing it before I went to grad school. Mm-hmm. And he went through it, was like, good, good, not good, bad, bad, whatever. Well, like, he didn't say that, but that was his tone. And then he identified a couple of uh, aesthetics that I, you know, that I also liked. And then we left that meeting and he was like, okay, so take my number down and take my email down, which I already had. Uh, <laughs> and he said, well, I'll, I'll let you know if I have work for you. So the next day he gave me two spot illustrations in the book review. And then it was amazing because he, he left the New York Times like six months later after like 40 years. I was like, holy shit, I got in at the end of Stephen Heller's run. And then after that, Nicholas Blackman uh, took over the book review, and he was amazing to work with. I did some stories with him, and also did some stories with Matt Dorfman, and a couple of other those other guys, and um, Aviva uh, Mikolov. Like they're, they're such a good crew. I, I I'm not so much in touch with them anymore, mm-hmm. but I always loved working with them. Even though you had heard the tone from Stephen Heller as yeah. like some of these are bad and yeah. some of these are good. And then the next day to, to still give you, you know, here's an opportunity. There's oh, two yeah. illustrations. What do you think his reaction was? This guy's got some good stuff. He's also got some bad stuff or whatever it may be. Right. You know, I'm sure there's like that creative feedback um, conversation that goes on. But what do you think went off in his head that, you know, hey, I got to call this kid tomorrow? Probably. Well, hopefully he's identified talent, you know. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> I also think that he probably identified earnestness and a willingness to put in the work. Mm-hmm. 
And looking back on it now, he was towards the end of his run. He was probably thinking, this is a time to experiment. Because he didn't even ask me for sketches. He was just like, I, I sent him one. And then he's like, oh, cool, publish this. And then the other one needed some work. So I just went back and worked on it. Um, but there was never the idea of a sketch. Then Nicholas Blackman also didn't didn't bring that mindset either. But then later he did. But uh, maybe there was some element of correction there from an organizational standpoint. But I think that Stephen Heller was just thinking, you know, let's let's give him a shot. And he was known to give a lot of really talented illustrators that first shot. You eventually go on to grad school. Yep. So you had already put in a couple of years at continuing education courses. Then you decide you're going to take a master's in illustration at SVA. At this time, I think it's from, you know, from your portfolio, it's fair to say that you're working on freelance projects as well, right? Yes. You're going to school. Um, I'm sure that schedule is, is hectic. You're working on freelance projects. Yeah. How do you manage? Like, what's your time? Like, what do you, where do you come out of that process learning about yourself in terms of time management? And, and how do you balance that for you? At the time, I had no time management because <laughs> it was a two-year illustration program, and they only accept 20 people a year, mm-hmm. very competitive, and also it was chaired by Stephen, uh, no, Stephen, uh, Marshall Arisman, who I love. Shout out to Marshall. Marshall is the god. Uh, Johnny Cash of illustration. And also, he taught me a lot of things about myself. Uh, what, uh, what they really show you there, or at least what I got out of it, was the gift of calling myself an artist. Because, you know, they talk about fraud syndrome. I left there being confident that I was an artist because I felt verified and and affirmed by all the great artists that were there, like Carl Totolo, R.I.P., um, Mirko Illick, right, who's a legend, Victor Cohen, who's a legend. Uh, and they would bring in people every week like uh, Milton Glaser, uh, Max Bodie, who was a art director at the New York New Yorker who gave me my shot. Mm. Like th- these are people that just gave you positive feedback. Or at least I had the experience of positive feedback there. In terms of time management, we were always in, I was always in the studio or I was posted up at the George Washington dorms in Chelsea or Chelsea or by Gramercy Park mm-hmm. that are currently now uh, the the freehand for, uh, that hotel yep. right that mm-hmm. that real uh, bougie ass hotel <laughs> uh, with, well I'm mean, not gonna lie I've, I've had drinks there which is so trippy by the way to be at a place where I used to fry like my eggs in the morning <laughs> and then now I did not know that was a thing there. yeah and then on, on the top level they used uh-huh. to have uh, drawing classes on that on that top tiki bar yep and then now uh, I paid twenty dollars for a cocktail. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I've, I've had a coffee there and I walked in really briefly and I did not <laughs> even know that there was any remnants of a school that used to be there or a dorm area right. that used to be there. It used to be like a hotel. Actually, on the second floor, there's some really great uh, New Yorker illustrations by uh, by Saul Steinberg. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, so. Anyone who's listening to this, peep those. <laughs> you, uh, you know, it's it's kind of funny as I mentioned before the podcast. There's, you've covered so much ground in your career so far, so yeah. it's kind of hard. I'm gonna probably skip over a few things, but to it. mention, you you win Young Guns, uh, Young Guns Eight, Young Guns Eight, right? So you win that from the art director. The cube club. designed by Justin Genak of Working Network. The cube is so cool. Yeah, the wooden cube. I've seen some of the more recent ones that like made out of clear glass or clear plexi, whatever it is. And oh, that one I chaired that year. That was done by Grand Army. Yeah, it's. I mean, so you've won that 
we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll mention that you've also ended up in that time working with NPR. Yes. Um, and something I want to kind of touch a little bit more go in depth at your time at AKA. Oh which yeah. Which was a lot of working with like Broadway and theater and music. Holy shows. shit. You've done your research, man. I, you know, you type in rich too and you try to find the, the bits of gold. And I thought one of the interest, most interesting things that came up was like, you did a lyric video for Matilda. Oh, yeah, I did. And, like, you know, Matilda was a... Shout out to Bashana Carr and also Jamal Parham. You know, I grew up watching Matilda. And then you also have done a ton of other shows. You did Macbeth. You right. Know, we're, we're in your office and you did a work with Alan Cumming. <laughs> yeah, like, there's a Macbeth one sheet here. Well, you know, can I, show you, can I tell you the reason why I still have this? Mm-hmm. Well, A, because it's my first New York Times single truck in at AKA and also in the Broadway space. But because that logo, that creative came together over 24 hours Mm -hmm. so i look at that and i'm thinking wow that actually looks pretty dope but also (laughs) it's just the scars a little bit of ptsd (laughs) a little ptsd just being up for 24 hours straight just sending back and forth revisions on emails and things like that exactly i want to talk a little bit about the theater because it's you know it's one of new york's biggest like attractions right like broadway musicals what are some of the standout shows that you got to work on standout shows well matilda for sure Mm. Uh, Macbeth for sure, which we identified. And also because uh, Alan Cumming went on Jimmy Fallon and then he's holding up a playbill. So you see Jimmy Fallon hoping, uh, holding up a playbill that you designed. It's pretty tight, right? That's That was, you know, super transformative for me. Uh, let's see. Worked on early concepts for Finding Neverland. Mm-hmm. Worked on early concepts for King Kong the Musical. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what the state of these, what these shows are now. Uh, got to redesign Stomp for the 20th anniversary. Saw that. Yeah, and actually, I look at the the current key art for Silicon Valley, where it's like big logo within like tagline inside. I was like, oh shit, is that a Stomp thing? <laughs> like a little reference. Someone went back and like, this is this is part of the mood board now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also because the N in Silicon Valley, you can tell in the ink wells that they didn't adjust them for for like large scale so mm-hmm. it's not like not true display i'm just like mm, i would have fucking talked hashtag that shit. type talk right here. <laughs> yeah exactly i would have tweaked that but hey whatever it's fine i think at this time you know one thing i noticed is that having gone through a program in illustration yeah when you start to work in the theater realm yes your illustration sort of starts to meet typography and lettering and messaging you know you take on this very what you start as like depicting poetry and, and things that you have thoughts in your head but then when you start to mesh it with the work at AKA, your illustration work starts to take form and right. doing all kinds of lettering and loose stuff like that. What right. is, you know, why was that the case? It, that's just the way it was. I always grew up or in, within the design space. I remember looking up to Spotco and one of my favorite posters, theater posters was John Leguizamo's Freak. Mm-hmm. Right, which was that beautiful illustration of John Leguizamo like screaming into the ether, like super trippy, just black light aesthetic. And I'm thinking, wow, they, they can do that on Broadway, right? Because I I also uh, had the 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 HBO special. I would just watch it continuously just because I was entertained by him. And uh, when I got to AKA, I was I love the idea of competing against Spaco, and then being put in the arena, going back to like b boy competitiveness. And then I met a few really amazing creatives who I'm still like super tight with to this day, like Bashan, mm-hmm. their ECD, uh, Jamal, who was, uh, we, me and Bashan were co-best men in Jamal's wedding. He's our director of content. Love Jamal. We were just hanging out a few days ago. And, you know, we got to make some really beautiful art. So 
from a, an evolution of my skill set level, I really look to Bash and Jamal for a lot of learnings. And also, you know, one of my partners in crime over there, uh, Rob Schnabel, who's over at AKA in the West End right now, mm-hmm. you know, I think he just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is wild to me. I'm looking at his Instagram. Big shout out. Yeah, big shout out. Big, tall, uh, <laughs> latitude shout out. So I remember I would talk to Bashan a lot because he is incredibly well-versed in the entertainment space and the combination of photography, illustration, typography, and what that means. So there's usually your key art image, right? Mm-hmm. There's a logo. And the first show that I worked on there was Trip to Bountiful, which which Cicely Tyson ended up winning her Tony Award for. And also had Vanessa Williams, you know, a lot of other great people, great performers, uh, Condola Rashad, and that was a great learning because that had to feel like a old and a dusty 1920s um, middle America, but also it was a black production of the show. So uh, that that was a new offering within that space as well. So, you know, you're working with super high-end photography. The name of the photographer completely escapes me right now, so I apologize. We commissioned a logo that had to feel like that uh, 1920s, you know, railroad train aesthetic and also to speak to that world. And then you you learn the ins and outs of what it means to have your talent's name being a certain percentage to the logo. So it's like you learn like what your what your 50-50 is or your 20-80 or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? So that level of specificity and then like where your taglines go. So every key art expression over there, at least at the time, would start at the poster. So you just crank posters mm-hmm. constantly. I remember we were we were working for 48 hours on a pitch for On the Town. Do you know On the Town? On the Town is, uh, the, you know, Frank Sinatra, Sailors, New York, okay, New York, yep, right? Yep. Where, you know, it's like Fleet Week or whatever the plot line is, and they're mm-hmm. just like raging, right? Uh, a shout out to Simpsons for doing that, <laughs> that really good uh, homage to it. Uh, so uh, we were, just, I remember over the course of 48 hours, we cranked out like 20 posters that were actually client ready. Mm-hmm. You know, you just pull in from the ether, you're just making shit constantly. My Photoshop skills went through the fucking roof. Let me tell you, I would sit in Bashan's office and I would try to trick him into showing me how to make shit because I just <laughs> wanted to see him make stuff. Sure, yeah. And on my podcast, we, me and Bashan, because uh, his family hails from Jamaica, I, I talked to him about it and I would be like, yo, bro, I would just, we would just be in your office like chopping it up, but I just want to see you make shit because like watching you play the drums. And then I that impressed upon me. Mm. And then that communicated itself to, you know, Illustrator, InDesign. So it's very much a way for you to start creating in this new sort of medium right like and applying that illustrative learning and all of those things that you took from being an artist and actually applying it to more you know i don't want to say not the word corporate but a more applicable medium in a sense yes exactly you also end up at another big standout project is the work that you did for coca-cola and queen which is a collab for uh red Yes, Coke Red, yeah. Coke Red. Shout out to Chris Merck as well. He's my uh, directing partner on that. Big, awesome project. And I think at this point, you start to venture, like it brings you to Nike. Yeah, right? it does. And I think this is also really exciting because, as we mentioned, when you were younger, being a B-boy, I think you have... You know, I've also read that you would call yourself a, a big sneakerhead. I mean, I've noticed your sneaker game. So <laughs> working at Nike, how did that happen? How did and that then, happen? Because you end up going to Portland. I did go to Portland. This was post-AKA. So I think this is, I 
left AKA in 2014 early and then I'm just freelancing at the time. I'm leaning on a lot of work I'm getting through working, not working, or just people, you know, reaching out to me. In that immediate space, when Nike first reached out, I was actually freelancing at Momentum, which is part of the McCann Group. And they do a lot of great experiential design and experiential work. And I have a few murals at the Momentum office. Shout out to uh, DC and also Heather. I love those guys. So I, I had just incorporated and then I'm coming from the courthouse and I'm, you know, I took a day off because I just needed to go to courthouse to do some personal stuff. And then I get an email. This is in summer, by the way, 2015. Uh, I get an email, super ominous, like, hey, are you interested in working at Nike? Let us know. And I'm like, okay, what is this? So, yes. And this is just like straight up in the inbox. In the inbox. You have a blank blank at Nike.com. Email address. It was like a third party search. Okay. Third party search. And then I got on the phone call, never heard from them again. I can't even remember their name because they immediately put me in the jet stream with Nike people. And then I meet uh, Zach Augustine, who runs the art department there. Love Zach. And also, you know, going back to Sneakerhead, I've been a Sneakerhead since, uh, since I can remember. One of my most vivid memories involving sneakers and back in Jersey at Livingston Mall, actually was seeing Vinny from Naughty by Nature mm-hmm. come out of foot action that used to be in the Sears wing of Livingston Mall. Comes out of a foot action with so many boxes with no entourage. And this is when Naughty by Nature is popping. So he's coming out of foot action, a shit ton of boxes, and I'm 12 or 13 years old. I'm at the mall to go to timeout because I still had an arcade and I just want to play Street Fighter Alpha 2. So I'm just cruising, seeing this. I'm like, whoa, that's wild. Then my first pair of sneakers or my first pair of Nikes was Air Force One Canvas Lows. It's an 11 and a half. Down to the material, too. Yeah, I I still still have the box in my parents' house. I still have that shoe I bought in seventh grade. I'm a size 11 currently, but I thought I sized up a half size because I thought my feet would grow. They never did. (laughs) I'm still waiting on that growth spread. Uh, you and me both, brother. Uh, but then I just kept buying sneakers constantly. And I was really, you know, early aughts, you know, the SB Dunk Wave, getting a lot of Jordans, my favorite pairs of sneakers. My prized possessions is probably Jordan 1, two, uh, 2001 Jordan 1 Royal that I've actually worn cross country. I've worn it at Nike. You know, it's still in great shape. I've worn it actually here. <laughs> It's held up. And I'm not making money back in 2000. I'm mm. I'm working at Borders Bookstore, not making jack Just shit. Spending it on sneakers. Spending it on sneakers. <laughs> calling, you know, the, the skate shops in Jersey, like Subculture or Division East. They used to be back in Verona or NJ Skate Shop in Sayreville because they had dunk accounts, yep. SB accounts. I was like, yo, do you have the Hulks? Do you have the Takahashis? Do you have the Futuras? <laughs> do you have the Bisons? I've like, always wondered about that. Off? Like, you know, because like New York is... A big sneaker release yes. like location, but New Jersey was never re- like you'd have to go no, not really. to certain places. And like I would say that like my first conscious shoe purchase was Nike Air Force One mid tops with the oh straps. gotcha oh and yeah those are like, uncomfortable like, I gotta say yeah you put the strap on you realize like this is a bad idea but then when you have them flapping around it's just like this yeah. is also a bad <laughs> idea but still like you know Air Force One iconic sneaker absolutely and then growing up in Jersey having like almost like a bottleneck of those cool releases that you have to like go and seek after right 
we're in your office and you have the the foam posits that you worked on. Yes. Touched so many different sneakers. What would you say is the biggest standout one that you got to touch? I think actually that foam posit, the little penny foam posit. Mm. Uh, I mean, aside from the recent Nike project that I did. Yeah, we're going to touch on that. Yeah, as well. gotcha. I, I figure you want to go in chronological order. So that one probably is the most meaningful because that was pretty much unchanged from initial sketch and pitch out to the consumer. We were we were ideating around the uh, 20th anniversary of the foam posit. And then I was looking through the archives of, you know, some some foam posit content that I saw this really dope ad uh, that I presume was done by White and Kennedy back in the day. And, you know, just re- recreated the typography around it said, hey, Penny, show me how to play ball, turned into an all over print pattern, and then uh, kind of pitched it to my business partners. And uh, they were about it, and they became the number one shoe, or was ranked the number one kid's shoe of 2017 with Hypebeast Kids. But aside from that, I'd say some of the Kyrie Irvings I've worked on, and shout out to Andrew Parkman also, uh, amazing color designer over in the Young Athletes category. And also, I got to say, some of the people that are there, like, that I met at the time, Andrew, right? He was amazing. Leon Witherow. Prestology on Instagram. His shit is so dope. He just released the uh, Air Max Alpha Savage. It's a dope training shoe. It's hard to keep up. Now, Nike's game is to the max right now. Oh, my God. Their performance and sneaker releases and models and innovation is insane. And the talent. Yes. Tomah Durand, who was a sneaker designer, he just he designed the Giannis Freak Ones that came out, which is a really good release for them. And also my old boss over there, Marnie Gerber, she was holding it down for dec- uh, two decades plus. She created the first Cheryl Swoops shoe, first uh, women's basketball shoe, and she's a legend. So being around those people who are also of shared mind and give you new insight into what it means to be into sneakers and into footwear because they'll show you anatomy show you construction show you like the actual engineering techniques that it takes to create and also to tell the stories mm. I, I mean i walked into my first nike interview and yeah I, I was so excited to even have the possibility i remember i bought a pair of air jordan 13 he got game colorway colorways specifically for that interview and at that point they hadn't been released in a couple of years so I was just like yeah I'll buy some retro shit you eventually make it back to New York and you end up working with Double XL magazine oh yeah and that was pre-Nike that was, that was before Nike yeah it was pre-Nike okay so we're gonna talk about this now then yeah you so it's before you go to Portland yes and you have mentioned that this was a big childhood dream of yours right it was the freshman class yes like a, 2015 you know, t- freshman class tell me about class. the project so if for the listeners, Double XL's a hip hop magazine. They were at the time when they first came out. There weren't that many hip hop magazines. the 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 most The most elevated one was probably the Source, mm-hmm. that was based out of Boston, and also there were the, some of the the smaller ones, which are still niche, like Word Up, Right On, but it was more like a hip hop teen beat, right? Uh, so Double XL comes out, and then it's uh, more elevated. It's like there's hip hop journalism, and also there's you know production values, photography, and then they started doing this thing called uh, the freshman class, where they would just highlight new rappers. I think Kendrick was one, Schoolboy Q was one. Fetty Wap was in the class. Fe- that uh, you Fetty Wap, on. yeah, Fetty Wap in the my specific class. Actually, I got the cover. In Another here. New Jersey talent. Oh yeah, shout out there to. Shout out to Patterson. So Fetty Wap, Vince Staples, um, yeah, um, Dej Loaf. Let's see, Rory. 
uh, Kid Kid, Gold Link, Shy Glizzy, K Camp. Gold Link, yeah. Gold Link. So that came about because the creative director of Double XL was also the creative director on Slam Magazine. Mm-hmm. So uh, Harris Publications yep. at the time. And that's actually what got me to to Nike because they that I had done a lot of work in the basketball and sports space as well as like the hip-hop youth culture space so they thought that my my design abilities would translate there coming on to the heels of nike getting the the uh, nba contract back but for double xl tom mevidich shot that cover yeah so much fun I, I loved working on that. It was a dream come true. And they've done a few of those covers since, but I, from what I can tell, I think that was actually one of the first times they'd done a cover that looked quite like that. Mm. You currently work at MTV. You know, like the other day with the Cultivator Project that we'll mention a little bit, you make an appearance on the actual MTV show, TRL. Uh, sure, yeah. What is your, being the VP of digital design, what is your day-to-day right now? And then how do you just get pulled into kind of these... <laughs> these things. These things. <laughs> these things. So... Cultivator came about, a friend of mine, um, shout out to Isaiah, Isaiah Steinfeld, uh, who's part of the Nike family, and I've known Isaiah for a while. Isaiah just gives me a heads up. He's like, hey, you should check out this Cultivator thing. We're thinking about doing this, or I don't think he even said we. He's like, here, check it out. So checked it out, sent a little note out, applied, whatever you want to call it. And then they hit me back and like, hey, we want to help tell your story through this, this drop. And what Cultivator was and is is it's a city specific drop that uses a group of influencers on a micro influencer level in order to tell their stories through footwear and then i'm in a unique position where i sat in the org and i existed in the org and i know how to tell nike stories you know the ins and outs of like the construction of a sneaker exactly and i know how to i know what it takes to tell that storytelling so i know the the buzzy things right um and also being in the space i am um here at mtv and also my experience even going back to aka i know how to make a photo shoot i know how to (laughs) i know how to do a campaign right so everything converged and then cultivator is like yo well we like you want to tell the first jen burden story which is amazing and then um, they gave me the models, uh, Air Max 270 Reacts, which is a new model. It's a beautiful model, and I, and I really like it a lot. So I was stoked to be on on the, the most elevated model side, too, of that release. And then uh, they say yes, and we're like, boom, bang, boom, pow. And then I, I essentially bring in a lot of my partners at Sunday afternoon. By partners, I mean, you know, friends mm-hmm. um, like Ahmed, JC. People, people have been on the podcast like Leslie, Ty, uh, Shira, mm-hmm. um, Zapong, right? Because Zapong's like super lit. Ball of energy. <clears throat> oh, my God. Love Zapong's <laughs> energy. So everyone gets involved and, you know, we, we just put together our, our own campaign, but, you know, make it look super elevated. Mm-hmm. And then within the cultivator space, we had to create our own assets. So those assets ended up traveling everywhere. Mm. It's on so many blogs, so many places. And then it gets picked up in, at Viacom uh, because we hit the algorithm super hard. So one of the segment producers on TRL, shout out to Esteban Serrano, my boy Esteban, he reaches out to Darren Byrne, uh, an EP on the show. Mm. Then Darren's like, oh yeah, well, we should, we should you know, show love to our people. So they bring me on to uh, 
TRL. We talk about the segment, basically talking about sneakers, and I talk more about sneakers in the breakout segment. Um, just talking about stuff I worked on at Nike, like mm-hmm. a couple of the Kyries, as well as like the phone posits, the Hey Pennies. And I'm sweating bullets leading up to it. Really? <clears throat> yeah, I'm sweating bullets leading up to it because a same day I have a very high level meeting that I have to be on for right before. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to schedule like, oh, I have to be in this high level meeting where I have to potentially, uh, you know, stand up for some work, you know. So and so you're always thinking about like, what are you going to say? How are you going to position it? Also, you have only so long within an agenda. Sure. And then I have an hour break. I have to go down to the TRL studio, sit into makeup. And also I have my talking points because I talked to them, talked to Esteban about them the night before. And I'm just kind of working through that script. So mm-hmm. I have to be on for that. And then what they don't tell you is that, or what the audience doesn't really realize is that that's a fully working and functional studio. It's a multi-camera studio and that has a crew. And to even exist in that space with the lights on costs money. <laughs> so you better show up with your shit right. Otherwise, <laughs> you'll look like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and also people and, and also you don't want to waste people's time. And I'm very conscious now because I'm conscious of the time that I have. I don't want to waste their time, mm-hmm. you know. And then uh, Kevin Kenny, who's the host, the uh, uh, one of the hosts, super awesome, love Kevin. You know, he he's super gracious and super generous and cues you up. So, and and I'm not, and I've had some elements of media training before. So, we have a good bounce back and forth. And I'm just happy that I was able to give them a segment they could use. You were like, it looked natural. You know, I I know the feeling of when you, you know, you have a sweater on, you have a shirt on, you're just sweating under that. But I gotta say, you look like you've done this before. Oh, sure. You know, and they had all the sneakers there, all of the things that you've worked on. Right. And, you know, props, (laughs) props to that. I mean, I would imagine the lighting, it's gotta be really hot, but it came out great. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate (laughs) that. Yeah, I was, I was actually really excited by the segment, but also the magic of editing. Editing does (laughs) so much. That shoe that you worked uh, that you worked on with Cultivator, yes, is also inspired by your podcast. That yes, you first generation burden. Yes, could you tell a little bit more about that project and and how it started? Sure. Oh, the first gen project. Mm-hmm. So first gen started when I was back at Portland in 2016. It was the summer of 2016 when Trump and Hillary were really going at it, and a lot of the rhetoric from the Trump side was super toxic about immigrants specifically. And also the the conversation, it, it was just hard to listen to, you know, an emotional level and a spiritual level, familial level, because my parents came here from the Philippines in the late 60s. And I'm thinking, I want to do right by them. So it's a burden, right? There was that burden to me. And I feel strongly about that narrative. And I launched that podcast with a first episode with Ame Klink, hailing from Lebanon by way of France. And we did that in a hotel room. Didn't even sound good. We recorded it months earlier because I just wanted to have a podcast. I know how to make content. I want. I wanted to work through my feelings at the time. And then Trump gets elected. And then I'm thinking, okay, you know what? Now is the time to release this. I'm going to call it First Generation Burden because one of my homegirls, uh, Nastasia, in Portland, she was like, oh, yeah, there's a show called Master of None. They talk about the idea of the first generation burden and it it just resonated with me and there's a double meaning of the burden on child 
and also the burden on the immigrant and also the burden of doing right by your family and also the kind of vibe at the time you know uh, the burden of being the other mm-hmm. the political climate the political climate and over time over the course of four seasons preparing for a fifth we have three episodes in the tank uh, now the ideas coalesced itself and also there's found a lot of different platforms or a lot of different places that picked up on it and it's really just a casual conversation it's not like this it's not unlike this mm-hmm. you know i uh, listened to a bunch of them and one it, it's obviously always amazing to learn from other people that are not in the same situation as you that come from different cultures to be able to kind of gain those experiences and learn through them but also as a result of this conversation what have you learned in just like starting a podcast like what have you kind of been able to Mm. grow as now a podcast host as a design director you know what have you come away with it oh man time management actually (laughs) no that's going back to that. that the time management thing it's editing long form storytelling Mm -hmm. Also, there are, you know, you look at your numbers, you look at your metrics, and then I realize that the conversations that are that feel natural, conversations where you can tell that the two people like each other, <laughs> those episodes do well. Mm-hmm. The episodes that I've had where I, where I know that I've felt I've had to force conversation out, those do less well. <laughs> it's like a little awkward start to get things rolling a little bit, and then you just, sometimes I've been in that seat where the right, guests need right. a little bit of just like, coaxing to oh, yeah. to relax and let their guard what down. What about the editing for your side? Because for me, it looks like a, like a buzzsaw sometimes. Yeah. And I'm just like, especially those painful interviews, you're just like, oh well, my God. I, I got to give a shout out to my boy, Kevin. Uh, he is an audio engineer and he has helped me all, got it. like basically since the started. So he's been a huge help for me. Because yeah, you know, it's like you're venturing into this medium that you have absolutely no clue what you're doing in terms yeah. of audio, right? But you, you know, obviously know how to tell a story. Right. And trying to figure out like the, Likewise. This the, is the actually the best you know, way to do this it. This is an amazing interview experience right now. I'm actually very impressed. I appreciate that. Where can people find that? More of First Gen Burden. Oh, sure. So firstgenburden.com, F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N-B-U-R-D-E-N. Also, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, basically anywhere that you find podcasts. And uh, yeah, we have 34 episodes in the tank, four seasons, fifth coming very soon. Um, Hope to launch by 2020. Mm -hmm. And also, there's some really interesting collabs coming down the pike that I can't quite talk about just yet but uh, it's going to be exciting first generation burden dot com first gen burden dot com <laughs> but google first generation burden because this will come up and where can people find more of rich Two? you can find me my website rich com if you want to look at some art and stuff and uh, my instagram handle is rich underscore tu um, also on twitter but I'm not so active on twitter yeah Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, John. This is amazing. And thanks for coming by. This podcast is produced by me, John Sarantino, out in Jersey City, New Jersey. Editing, mixing, and music are all done by my friend Kevin Bendis in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Definitely check him out. You can find out more about WellFed and where to listen at wellfedpodcast.com or on social media at WellFedPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.